Welcome to A Bigger Life, where you can break through the distractions, stop, listen, and speak to God in prayer. I'm Dave Cover. I want to help you use the Bible as your conversation with God so you can live a bigger life. Let me ask you a question. What comes to your mind when you think of Jesus? What image? I mean, I know you, you think of something. What, what imagination is activated when you hear the name Jesus, when you're thinking of Jesus, when you're praying to Jesus? How do you feel toward that Jesus? Does, does that Jesus make you want to follow him, obey him? Or is it hard to resist temptation with that Jesus as your Jesus? How much do you want that Jesus to be Lord of your life, to be your king of your life? I don't think the problem for most of us is that temptation is too powerful, sin is too big for us to resist. I I think it's that our Jesus is too small not to resist. We, we, we want to resist that Jesus because he's a little Jesus. It's easier to resist that Jesus than it is to resist sin sometimes. And uh, today I want to let a Bible passage kill your little Jesus. We need to kill our little Jesuses. Because the the Jesus in this passage we're going to look at today, the first three verses of the New Testament book of Hebrews, the Jesus in this biblical passage is far greater than we can ever imagine. Let's look at the passage here real quick. Let me just read it. It says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. Now, this is just basically talking about what the Old Testament is. The Old Testament is God speaking to the ancestors. This author is obviously Jewish. So this is an, an author who's saying God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets, through what we would call the Old Testament at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, now these last days is the idea in this if we have a line of a, a string of segments of history, we are in the last times. This last time so far is about 2,000 years. But the Old Testament times were at least 2,000 years as well. So just being in a certain times doesn't mean it's quick. It doesn't mean literally just a few days. Days is symbolic for an historical period. We are in the last historical period before Christ returns. In these last days, God, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So the first verse says the same God who spoke in the past through the Old Testament is, has now spoken decisively in his son. God's revelation in the former times always pointed forward. It was always about Jesus. The Old Testament was always pointing forward to what has now been revealed in the person and the work and the death and the resurrection of his son, Jesus. In Jesus Christ, 
God has finally spoken. He has inaugurated the long-awaited time of fulfillment that the Old Testament anticipates in various ways. These these times where he is building his temple on earth, he is building his church, he is building a new humanity, a new community, and we are part of that. And what it means is that Jesus' view of the Old Testament was the highest view any of us could have, anybody's ever had. His view of the Old Testament is true. God was speaking through the Old Testament. He has finally spoken through Christ. The resurrection of Jesus shows that everything Jesus taught is true, and Jesus said the Old Testament is God's word. It also means that his view of the New Testament is true. The commissioning of his apostles to be authors of Scripture, to be authority of his teaching by the Holy Spirit. So we should view the Bible the same way that Jesus does. God is speaking to us. God has spoken and he is speaking to us in his word. The question is, are we listening? Do we have a view of Jesus based upon what God has spoken, based upon what the Bible speaks, based upon the resurrection of Jesus and the authority of his apostles commissioned by the resurrected Jesus to witness the life the teaching, the resurrection, the death, all these things about the kingdom of God through Christ. Are we listening? And what I mean by that is, are we letting our imagination be built by what the scripture teaches us about Jesus? Are we letting what the scripture says about Jesus shape the Jesus in our imagination, the Jesus in our mind, the Jesus that comes to our mind when we are praying or when we're thinking about being obedient or not being obedient, not following or following Jesus as our Lord. So there's seven truths about Jesus in verses two and three. And I think that's significant because remember seven is kind of that key number in the Bible going all the way back to the very first page of the Bible, the seven days of Genesis one, where it's talking about God creating the universe and ultimately the purpose of creating the universe is the seventh day. It's symbolic of God resting, God filling his creation, creation being a temple of God and God's presence filling all of creation with his glory. There is rest in the sense of flourishing, fulfillment, shalom. And that rest has been interrupted by the events that didn't quite go well in day six, so to speak, with Genesis 3, the fall of humanity, and everything that is happening now in salvation history, Christ taking back what was lost in Genesis 3, returning us to God's will for his creation. So I think the seven here is is no doubt based on just that idea that that Jesus is the kingdom of God. Jesus is the the, the seventh day rest. The Bible does this all over the place. John, the apostle, has the seven miracles of Jesus, the seven I am statements where Jesus says, I am the vine, I am the good shepherd, I am the way. And 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 then there's I, seven I am statements that just simply where Jesus says, I am, before Abraham is born, I am, do not be afraid, I am. And then there are seven other things all throughout John, all throughout the book of Revelation. Seven is everywhere. There's a number not as a secret code, but as a poetic symbol of God's perfect will. God bringing about his kingdom, his flourishing, his shalom. And the author of Hebrews is no doubt picking up on that because this is, a, this is an author steeped in the Old Testament scriptures and showing us how Jesus is the seven. Jesus is this 
Genesis 1, seventh day of God dwelling perfectly with his creation, flourishing, rest, shalom, the kingdom of God, all that. So remember Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I am the seventh day. So the seven things that the author of Hebrews says of Jesus. Now, is this the Jesus you have in your mind? He is the heir of all things because of his death and his resurrection and his exaltation and his return. Jesus is the one who receives the promises that were meant for humanity, created in God's image to rule over God's creation, continue his work of creation, reflect his glory, live in his love That was lost in Genesis 3, but Jesus is the true human. God became human in the person of Jesus, and Jesus is the heir of all things. And remember, we looked at Romans 8, where Paul says that we are heirs of God. We are co-heirs of Christ, that through Christ, we are heirs of God's inheritance of the kingdom of God. The second thing is that Jesus is the one through whom God made the universe. The author of Hebrews in chapter 11, verse 3, will say, By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command. So so Jesus is the one through whom God made the universe. Jesus made the universe. Remember, it says in John chapter 1, verse 3, Through him, through Christ, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. The third thing is that the Son is the radiance of of God's glory. Now, I'm not 100% sure what he means by this, to be honest with you, because the Jesus that we see in human life, well, John says that the Word became flesh, in John 1, 14, the Word became flesh, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only from the Father, full of grace and truth, full of steadfast love and faithfulness is the idea, full of grace and truth. So I, I, I don't know what exactly is meant. The sun is the radiance of God's glory when Jesus was a human on earth, maybe just in the sense that he is showing forth the grace and the love of God. In that sense, he's the radiance of God's glory. Or it could be the risen Jesus that Paul, the apostle, and the other apostles saw is the radiance of God's glory. Paul saw him shining brighter than the sun. So in some sense, I don't know exactly what that means, except that Jesus embodies the very glory of God in some way. And then the fourth thing is that he is the exact representation of God's being. Somehow Jesus is the perfect embodiment of God himself. When Jesus was born, God became human, and he was the perfect representation of God, God's essence, God's being. The fifth thing is that he is sustaining all things by his powerful word. Colossians 1.17 says, he is before all things. Jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together. It says that after it says that all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The author of Hebrews is saying something very similar. Somehow, some way, Jesus is the one who is holding the universe together. He created the universe And he is holding it together by his command, by his word. Six, after he had provided purification for sins. So he provided complete purification for sins. The author of Hebrews is really big on this teaching 
He'll say in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27, that Jesus sacrificed for our sins once for all when he offered himself. He'll say the same thing in chapter 10. Once for all, for all time, for all sins, Jesus provided perfect purification for sins. There's nothing else that can be added to that. And the last thing, seventh thing, is that he sat down, and this is significant that this is the seventh. This is kind of the seventh day. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Now, all these things kind of sound highly theological, kind of lofty. They don't really necessarily appeal to our emotions if we're not really getting what this author is saying. But when this author says that Jesus sits down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, the glory of God in heaven, and Jesus has died on the cross for our sins, the purification of our sins, broken through the other side of death, risen from the dead, ascended to heaven as the perfect human king, and he sits at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. We have to understand what is happening there. He is representing us at the very right hand of God. We've been talking about the right hand of God in other episodes here. And I think that what happens is when we're tempted to think, well, then it doesn't really matter if I sin since they're all forgiven. He's purified me from my sins. I think sometimes we think that, but I think that it shows that we don't really believe in the Jesus of the Bible because the Jesus of this passage is not a Jesus that we would prefer to sin versus obey him. We, we don't want to resist this Jesus when we really get this Jesus. We much rather resist sin. It's not an issue of whether or not Jesus has provided purification for our sins. It's an issue of who do we want to be Lord of our life? What do we want to be Lord of our life? What do we want to follow? Who do we want to follow? What is the greater glory? What is the weightier that matters most? What does this passage tell us about God's love for us, that he became the perfect human being in bodily form, embodying the very glory of God, embodying the very essence of God, so that at least one of the things he could do would be to provide purification for sins, that God was willing, the God that created this universe was willing to become human in the person of Jesus so that he could suffer, be beaten and die to take away your sin. That's how much God loves you to take away your sin. Paul said, the life I live, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself, delivered himself up for me. Paul saw it as very personal when Jesus died. Jesus died for him. And I think we should do the same thing. When Jesus, when God became human in the person of Jesus and Jesus provided purification for sins, he did it for you. He did it for me. The very essence of God himself embodied in Jesus, the very glory of God himself, the radiance of God's glory embodied in Jesus wanted to die for you, loved you, and gave himself for you. What does that tell you about his love for you, that he would do that, his will for your life, whether or not you can trust him? See, I think this passage tells us, even though it kind of seems high and theoretical, I think when it seems too high and theoretical, we're not really getting it. Because what this passage is telling us is that the God that created this universe, the very radiance of God in the person of Jesus, 
the very glory of God embodied in the person of Jesus, the essence of God embodied in the person of Jesus, loved you and provided purification for sins for you so that you could be a co-heir with him over all things on earth, that God created you to rule and to continue his work of creation and continue living in his glory, reflecting his glory, living in his love, sharing in his love, sharing his love with his creation. God has this incredible will for your life. It's a long story. These last days have been going on for two years, but this story is an eternal story. It is a long story. But when Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, he sat there for us. And so we sit there in him. Remember, the most common term for being a Christian is not the word Christian. It's in Christ. We are in Christ. We are in him. It says that at least 160 times in the New Testament. We are in Christ. We are in him. And in him, we are co-heirs of all things. And Paul says in Ephesians 2 that we have been raised with Christ and seated with him at the right hand of the Most High. Now, again, don't let this stay theological, theoretical. Understand what this is saying. God has you seated with Christ, in Christ, right next to him at his majesty in heaven. That's where you are legally, and in some sense, that's where you are spiritually. Right now, Paul says we are citizens of heaven. In some aspect, there's a part of you that sits right at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Because you've been raised with Christ, in Christ, with Christ, you've been raised. You have died already. You've been raised already. And you're seated right now at the right hand of the majesty in heaven with Christ, in Christ, because you are a co-heir with Christ. So we're going to be the radiance of God's glory, not in a way that we embody God himself, but in a way that we do share in the divine nature, the Bible tells us. His Holy Spirit indwells us. This is why Jesus is said to be the way and the truth and the life in the Bible, because he is the only way forward for you. Everything else is a dead end. He is the only life for your life. There is no life in sin. There is no glory in sin. There's no majesty in sin. There's no inheritance in sin. That's all a lie. It's an empty lie. It's a false promises. All the promises of sin are false promises that are not going to satisfy because they are all a dead end. Only Jesus is this future of glory and majesty, total purification, righteousness, radiance, glory, inheritance, the presence of God. Is your Jesus too small? Is he so small that it's easy to resist him but not resist sin because sin has taken a bigger promise in your life, a greater glory? Because I have to ask myself, if all this is true about Jesus, then why in the world do I get more excited by other glories, more intimidated by other glories, more intimidated by other people, why in the world do I fear someone else more than I fear in the sense of awe and reverence Jesus? Wanting their approval and fearing their rejection more than I want the approval of Jesus. How silly it is to fear somebody's rejection enough to perhaps even turn away from this Jesus. 
that their approval would have such a power in my life that I would consider walking away from this Jesus so that I could have their approval. And if I just thought for five minutes, I'd realize, okay, wait a minute, they're going to die. It's all going to be a dead end. Why in the world would I leave this story? Because I want somebody else's approval. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't even make any logical sense, let alone biblical spiritual sense. And so we pray, God, thank you that you have spoken, that you have not remained silent, that you have not left us in our ignorance, but you have spoken to us by your Holy Spirit through your prophets in the Old Testament. And you have spoken to us by your son, by the one who became human in the person of Jesus and was the perfect embodiment of your glory and the perfect embodiment of your very essence, the one through whom you created the entire universe by your powerful word, and the one who right now, even now, sustains the entire universe, even right now, the molecules in my body with which I speak, with which I think, with which I breathe, are the molecules held together by Jesus. I give thanks to you that you speak to me by your Holy Spirit, through your word, by the words of Jesus and his apostles that he has commissioned to speak his witness into my life, by the word of your prophets when I read the Old Testament, by the words and prayers of David and other prophets when we pray to you in the other episodes through your word, through all the scriptures that you have given us to speak to us. You speak to us and you speak even through us to others. We speak to others and in some way we are your voice to them and others speak to us and they are your voice to us. We are speaking by your Holy Spirit. You speak and you are not silent and we give thanks to you that in these final days of salvation history, you have sent your son so that we can be children of God, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, because you have appointed him heir of all things, all things. You have given us all things. Your word says in Romans eight thirty two, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things, all things? You have already died to give us all things, to break through the other side of death. You have already risen from the dead so that you can give us all things. How will you not also give us all things since you've already done the hard part? You've already died. You've already come. You've already suffered. Now all you have to do is give us what you decided to give us when you came and died and rose from the dead. All things, heir of all things. We have no idea what that means, but we know your word says what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of anyone ever imagined what you have prepared for those who love you. The one who made the universe died for me. If I could just get my mind around it, the one who created the galaxies, created all the stars and the planets and the galaxies in this entire universe, loved me enough to become human, to die for me so that I could be in him and a co-heir in him, so, so that I could live with the radiance of God's glory, so that I could live with the exact representation of your being, being my perfect human king and my Lord in my presence, me in your presence, the one who sustains all things in the universe by his very word, 
by the one who sustains all things, even in the molecules of my body, by your word, that you dwell in me, that you love me. Your will for me is good. Your will for me is perfect. Your will for me is joy. Your will for me is flourishing and shalom and goodness. And apart from you, I have no good. There is no good apart from you. So I want you to be my Lord and my King because you made purification for all my sins. I can't add to that. There's nothing I can do to add to your forgiveness of my sins because all my sins have been forgiven by what Jesus has already done. I can't add to that. It's silly to even talk about me adding to it. How can I add anything added to the weight of the one who is the very radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of your righteousness? The one who created this universe is the one who became a sacrifice for my sins. I don't have a sin great enough to equal the one who sacrificed for my sins. Your sacrifice paid for all my sins. You have broken through the other side of death for me. I am completely 100% forgiven of 100% of my sins. You're the one who is weightier, a greater glory, the one I don't want to resist. I want to resist sin because it's stupid. It's a dead-end promise. You're the one I don't want to resist because you sit at the right hand of the very majesty that created this universe. You are the majesty that created this universe, and you sit at the right hand of God as the perfect human king on my behalf. And so in you, I sit at the right hand of God. In you, I have purification from sins. In you, I am a co-heir of all things. I want to kill little Jesus in my life because there is no little Jesus in reality. The only real Jesus is this Jesus who created all things, is the representation of the very being of God, the radiance of God's glory, the heir of all things, the one who sits at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, the one who created everything, created me, and created me to live in your bigger story forever. And I pray these things and I submit to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to A Bigger Life, a podcast of The Crossing, a church in Columbia, Missouri. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and give it a rating so people can find this content more easily or consider texting it to a friend or posting it on social media. Thanks for listening.